wait, avoid legal snags by telling people they're being recorded. Maggie, just so you know, you are now on the First Impressions Podcast. The First Impressions Podcast? Kristen, <laughs> what's the First Impressions Podcast? It's the podcast where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all the haters. And well, that I, sounds like a delightful podcast. Yeah, yes, it sounds delightful. And I hope a lot of people at the Jane Austen Society of North America, otherwise known as JASNA, whom you gave our card to feel the same way. So yeah, we're back from Jasna, everybody. We made it. I hope that we have new listeners because I I worked it. I had hustle. She Maggie did. I she, was handing. I was giving out those cards like they were dollar bills. <laughs> she was just making it rain in the emporium. <laughs> Even people who didn't, they were like, "What is this?" I'm like, "Take it." <laughs> just lift <laughs> it. <laughs> Everyone was very open-hearted and kind and willing to talk to us about our interests and our background and just like just like academic conferences, but in an even heartier spirit of friendship, I would say. Yes. So I thought that this was really interesting because it Jasna sort of takes an academic conference and a fan convention and mashes them together. Really interesting as a first-time attendee. I th- it works. I think it works. It has like a sense of fun while still celebrating serious scholarship. And I was really digging that. I have been to a lot of academic conferences. And, and Jas- I have been to a lot of fan conventions. I know it. And <laughs> I've not been really- to an academic conference. <laughs> but I have, I have never been to a fan convention. Right? Really? And- yeah, no, never. And so our fan conventions the same where you go into the little conference room and somebody's up there with PowerPoint slides. Yeah, so but usually it is a panel. So there's basically two types of at a fan convention you'll have two types of presentations. You'll either have a panel, although the I mean when I say panel it could have one person, but it's just it's someone who is say a fan who is presenting. Um, just talking about the fandom or specific parts of it, things like that. This is what I do at the conventions with my um, creating safe um, and inclusive gaming spaces panel that I'm on. Then you also have celebrity guests. And sometimes the celebrity guests are people who are working behind the scenes, you know. So they can be technical people, costume designers, producers, directors, and a lot of actors, So you kind of have your in-the-industry people and then you're outside of the industry. And Jasna's kind of similar, except everyone is, to me, felt like they were in the industry because almost everyone who presented was an academic, I think. Yeah, they were all scholars. Yeah, and they all had their, like, PowerPoint slides. I mean, they they could have been, a lot of them could have been presenting at a conference that was solely an academic conference and not a Jasna mashup conference. So that was the biggest surprise to me is that, and it actually it wasn't a surprise. Like I kind of knew it was going to be that way, but there were no um, interactive panel kind of sessions. Yeah, that was something, um, I mean, just to first focus on positives because it was overwhelmingly positive experience. I found everyone's breakout session and the plenary sessions fascinating. It was so good. And I thought everyone did a fantastic job. I was surprised by the lack of panel informal 
discussion, like you were saying, where people who are in the fandom and not in academics would also have the opportunity to host a a session of some kind. For example, in the future, I could see you and I doing a live podcast, um, but I don't know if that type of informal program is welcome. Yeah. And, you know, we know that the mission was not just to be academic. So I don't think that would necessarily pollute Jasna, but I think the demographics of Jasna certainly skew much older mm-hmm. and towards people who have never been to another kind of fan con right. who are not familiar with sort of po- the um, social media phenomenon that is Jane Austen. Because I, you know, Reception studies and fan studies are huge in the Austin world right now. Everyone and their mother is coming out with a book on Austin fandom. Right. And and in order to like really examine that, it would be really interesting, I think, to get some actual big deal fans and talk about their experiences. That, you know, and I don't want to go into negatives too either, because I don't think this is a negative exactly, but one thing that that I would like to see in the future, I'll just frame it that way, is it would have been so cool to see like drunk Austin up there with like, uh, you know, other famous Austin social media people or famous Austin fans uh, answering questions or just doing a panel or talking about their experiences more casually. So I think that that is something that the organization will hopefully look to moving into the future. Because if you want your organization to survive and flourish and welcome new people and younger people, um, make bringing it a little less out of academia during the day, I think would serve them well. But of course, we're not on any board. Nobody's asked our opinion. (laughs) I think a good way to think of Jasna, there's Jasna by day, which is academic <laughs> paper presentation. And then there's Jasna After Dark, which is Regency murder mysteries, country line dancing, uh, not like country, American country music, but English country dancing. Um, and then the ball and the banquet and all of that. So you have your like daytime formality and then your nighttime frivolity. <laughs> I think that's an excellent way to describe it. And the workshops before the conference were a little yes. bit more on the fan side. You want to talk about cravats. Yeah. So the first thing we did when we got into town after we checked into our room was we immediately headed over to the hotel for a cravat tying workshop. And I thought it was fun, but they gave me one of the men's shirts to wear with the oh my crazy God wrist lace and the high neck and I was I was like seriously gentleman jack vibing you looked amazing there are pictures on the Facebook page as well and she just looked amazing I was dying I loved it the the bright lipstick was a good choice yes with that uh, with the cravat cravat. and the the lacy (laughs) men's shirt cravat tying was easier than I expected actually I was both easier and harder because I am not good at spatial things. So once I got it, it's like, oh, you just do this, do that, do this. But when she's demonstrating and we're supposed to mirror her, I'm like, I had no idea. I forgot how to tie a bow at one point. That what happened to me too. I was like, I just don't. How did I? How do I normally do this? I can't tie a bow. I can't tie my shoes anymore. She's like, okay, this one is just like tying your shoelaces, except you use the opposite hand to pull the loop through. 
So I'll just let that sink in for a minute. And if you want to try to do it, it's really hard. So I'm right hand dominant. So I do it. I like loop it around, pull it through with my right hand, trying to do it with my left hand. It was like I was in the twilight zone and I needed Velcro shoes again because I couldn't remember how to tie it. Um, But then once we got it, it looked really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And and um, what happened when you brought your cravat home? Um, pretty much immediate. Well, you were there pretty much immediately when we hit the door, it was, Oh, did you bring me a cravat? And then when I gave it to Bay, he got so excited. He ran into the bedroom, took off the t-shirt he was wearing and put on a collared shirt and a vest (laughs) so he could get the full cravat viewing experience. And then he asked me how to tie it. And I was like, are you serious right now? You tie a tie every day. You can figure it out. Um, it's true. And I was just so amazed because I can't even get Kevin to wear a collared shirt with a sweater, which is the the height of formality that I <laughs> wish he aspired to. Um, I do like that look. Oh, and then when they flip the um, the sleeve up at like the elbow. Oh, yes. I love that. I love that, too. And I, I keep that. buying him it's sweaters so and it just never happens. Bay is a government contractor, and so he has to wear a collared shirt and tie every day. Wow. So he definitely dresses more formally. He's the man. He is the man. So Unlike me, since I work at home, my work uniform is like athleta, athletic wear. <laughs> nice. We live in the dream. That's so right. I got to do. What did we? What else did we do on Thursday? So after the cravat tying workshop, we had pretty much a. Um, a big gap. We checked out the Emporium, which let's talk about the Emporium, Kristen. The Emporium is so cool. Um, The bonnets on display there were to die for. And I felt like... Kristen wouldn't shut up about the stupid bonnets, (laughs) y'all. I know. This bonnet is is 500 fucking dollars. (laughs) (laughs) They were expensive. But where did we make a beeline to first? Oh, the dude, dresses. the dresses, hello, because I was like, oh, I'll just wear a cocktail dress, it's fine, because if you've been following our social media, you know that Rent the Runway canceled my order, they've been having some distribution issues, so I just packed a cocktail dress, but as soon as I saw that rack, I was like, hello, because I didn't know they'd have just off-the-rack Regency dresses. Yeah, I had me. no idea, and they were beautiful. Yeah, they were great, so we snapped up one of those. Yeah, Maggie was trying on, trying some on. It was so much fun. Everybody was like swarming the racks. There was beautiful clothing and it was it was a lot of fun. I figured we had to get in there ASAP as soon as I saw it because they, they probably only have what they brought like right. on display and it was going to sell out like that. So And I thought, oh, I'll have all weekend to sort of mull my choice over and then finally decide what I want to buy. And I noticed that there was a, a beautiful jewelry uh, jeweler there who was selling not, not real jewels, just, just costume jewelry. Um, but she had made a replica of the Topaz cross that um, Jane's brother brought back from her for her from his Navy travels. And I was like so jazzed to see it. I was like, this is so cool. It's a replica Topaz cross, just like Fanny Price. And then when I went back like an hour late, there were four of them. When I went back for like an hour later, they were all gone. And so I immediately was like, the time to buy is now. And so I bought one that was not a Topaz color. It was rose gold color. And I am obsessed with it because I was just pretending it was 
the necklace, right, from Mansfield Park. I was pretending it was Fanny Price's necklace, and I was just all into this purchase. And then, of course, the books. There was a bookseller there who had every Jane Austen title you could possibly imagine. Including the Jane Austen Kama Sutra. Yes. Which (laughs) Which also was bought. (laughs) (laughs) By the time we went back to look at it again. I just thought it was hilarious. And so when I looked for it again, I was like, okay, whatever. (laughs) I mean, the pictures were kind of funny because it was just a man and a woman sitting drinking tea or standing three (laughs) feet away from each other. So it was very... um, not tongue in cheek and that there were no tongues touching any cheeks. <laughs> yeah. And then Jane Austen's house had like um, things they were auctioning off. Um, they had a replica of Jane's um, turquoise ring there that they weren't selling. You can actually special order them. And so I got the order form and I got sized and I'm just going to plan to just slip this information to Kevin casually, uh, for some, casually for some future date. They're like They're like 500 pounds. I mean, they're a really nice piece of jewelry. And then, and this was kind of weird to me. They were auctioning off. <laughs> Do you know who Lucy Worsley is? Um, I actually don't. You mentioned that on the uh, Facebook Live video we posted. You kept you were in raptures, and I didn't want to have the heart to tell you. I didn't know what the hell you were talking about. Lucy Worsley uh, wrote, and hold on, while I look it up so I can get the title absolutely correct. Her dress was very pretty. Okay, she's a historian, and she wore this blue sort of. Um, blue flowery floral pattern dress with these short puff sleeves on her documentary about Jane Austen that, that they recorded with her. And she wrote Jane Austen at home, a biography. And so this, so the dress is famous for its appearance in the documentary. It is because she wears it when she introduces Jane Austen at home and it's a very pretty dress and it's sort of always in these pictures of her Actually, it's funny that you said I was enraptured because when I realized what it was, because I honestly recognized it right away. I know that's insane. I mean, you're at, I'm sure everyone else in that room did too, except I know, me. But I was it like, is the Jane Austen Society of North America. <laughs> it's not, it's not that Lucy Worsley isn't, you know, famous, but I don't know that anyone covets her dress particularly. <laughs> But it is a cute dress. So hey, yeah. what the hell? And they were auctioning it off for the cha- for charity. They were, and then and then, yeah. And then they were um, doing things for Cleveland as well. We didn't do any of the auctions, but it, they just had a ton of stuff going on in there. And I honestly wish the Emporium had been much bigger and was expecting I it agree. to be much bigger. I agree. Um, usually, the vendors, when you at least at fan conventions. The vendors are kind of a lot of people go just for that, just for and that. they're huge. They cover so much acreage that it takes forever to try to see everything. Um, I would say this was fairly modest, but the things that were there were really good and interesting. Yeah, um, we did spend a lot of time there. I was just sad that the the person um, who sells the tea that was mm-hmm. mentioned in Among the Janeites, the book where she sells tea based on the characters and their personalities. I really wanted to try that tea. Yeah, I wonder if she has a website. We could look it up. Yeah, maybe um, Just to follow up on something you said when you mentioned Cleveland, that is because the 2020 JASNA annual meeting will be in Cleveland next year. And the theme is her juvenilia, Austin's yes. juvenilia. I am personally more excited about 2021 in Chicago which is Jane Austen in the arts. 
I love uh, that theme. And I have it on my calendar. We'll see. Who knows what will happen in two years, but no. here's hoping. No. Um, so, yeah. And so then we can, uh, you know, one of the other things that highlights that I'll just mention right away, that was a highlight, the highlight, really. I know what you're going to say, and it's mine, too. Is meeting the fans. Yes, we there. got to meet two of our listeners. <laughs> it was so much fun, you guys. It was so much fun. It was like meeting long lost friends and there was so much joy meeting. Um, we could say their first names, right? I don't know. Can we? Yeah, yeah. because they're on the Facebook page, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. So we, we first ran into Leanne, who was actually the official photographer of the event since her chapter of Jasna was hosting. She was doing so much work and working so hard and doing a fantastic job and taking beautiful pictures. photos. That if you're, not to keep plugging the Facebook page, but if you're on the Facebook page, you got to see a ton of them. Um, We were sharing them and they just turned out great. And uh, so it was was great to see her, but I feel really bad because she was just eating her lunch and just sitting there. But (laughs) I recognized her immediately because she looks just like her profile photo. So I just stopped dead and I was like, Leanne? And here (laughs) she is. She had just taken a bite of food. She's like looking at me. Of course, she didn't recognize us. Like we're our photos aren't really on the page I so I had to be like recognized us well she I had to be like right oh. up and ran over to you well once I said once I said you know because she was like uh who is this person accosting me I was like oh we're Kristen and Maggie from first impressions and then she bounded over and she's like oh my gosh how do you greet someone who you feel like you know but you've never met before and it was just this joyous <laughs> like meeting and then and the same thing was true with meeting Beth Yes, when we, so she was Beth at the registration was, table. She was amazing because she's the she messaged me when my um, Rent the Runway fell through and told me she had an extra Regency dress. So before I decided to get one, Beth was there in the like last minute, saving the day, had a dress that I could borrow, which I thought was so kind. Someone she's never met, I could be a serial killer. Yeah. And she's like, here, wear my dress. <laughs> Or we could have so, just been real jerks. I mean, she doesn't know. Or maybe I sweat a lot. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> no, I don't. I think I sweat a normal human amount. A normal human amount, as <laughs> as as anyone might expect, sure. Yes. But anyway, so we got to meet her right away as well. And it was just so fun. And we had dinner with Beth on Thursday. And it yeah, was so fun. So cool. More on that later. But yeah, we had the best time. Honestly, that was just the highlight. If I, you know, if I had to pick one thing, it was so much fun. That was my favorite part was just talking to uh, Leanne and Beth for sure. Yeah. And um, we also met Bianca of Drunk Austin. Several times, yes. For like half a sec. Um, But her fiance was also there and we wound up talking to him for like 45 minutes and he's an incredibly cool guy. I just want to say that despite the fact it's a Jasna meeting, uh, I had to talk about Star Wars. So, oh, you know, yeah. it's going to be ran into Frank. <laughs> yeah. yeah, her fiance's name is Frank, and he is uh, he can hold his own with the Star Wars chatter. <laughs> and we talked about a lot of other nerdy... It was such a cool conversation. I just... Fantasy everything thing. about that night. That was at the ball. We also, by the way, met the one, the only, Debra Yaffe at the ball. Uh, we met her because I, I texted Arnie and I was like, Arnie, I need to be- meet Debra Yaffe and their friends. And so he's like, Did you Come see on that, over. He w- that he was sitting right next to her when you texted him? No, I didn't. And he oh, was like, They Come were on sitting over. together chatting and we and just showed up way, and totally crashed their. I know, yeah. we totally crashed their conversation. And by the way, I can't even believe I didn't say this at this point, but 
Also, a huge highlight was meeting Arnie in person. For me, yes. it was the first time ever meeting him in person, having known him for so long. And it, he was the most charming, fun conference companion you could possibly imagine. It was absolutely. I would so love great. it when someone would be presenting something and then he would, his hand would shoot up and he turned to me and he said, I'm about to blow this guy's mind. And I was like, yes, Arnie, do it. And I have to, I have to say, I mean, if you have strong opinions about not agreeing with Arnie, that the two points that he made in the plenary sessions were both amazing truth bombs that made everybody sit up and go, oh, snap, that was a really good point. Audible gasps. Audible gasps. Yes. Um, yeah, I wrote, a, I have a, I bought a little notebook at the William & Mary bookstore where Maggie used to work, by the Yay. way. So we're wandering around in there, reliving old times. I bought a little notebook to take notes and I have an entire page dedicated to a comment that he made about Catherine Moreland. You should share what he has said about uh, the narrators and the heroines. Yes, that's the one. Um, so since we're talking about it, I'll just well, I'll just say this, and then we can get into some of the content that was covered. But um, we were in the first plenary. Remind me of the lady's name, Jocelyn Harris, who is the professor. Is it Emerita? Emerita. Emerita. Yeah. Sorry, I'm terrible, and I even took Latin in some <laughs> uh, at uh, in New Zealand at the University of Otago in New Zealand, and she is well known worldwide for her lectures on Jane Austen. I thought she was the cutest thing. And anyway, she was talking about basically it was why Catherine Moreland is awesome and all you haters, just like us, like giving a middle finger to all the haters. This is why Catherine Moreland is amazing. Super guilty, having called her dumb as a box of rocks like six times on our Northanger Abbey podcast, which, by the way, we are going to totally revisit Northanger Abbey. Oh, yes. That's the whole theme of the conference this year was the 200th anniversary of Northanger Abbey. So there will be more Northanger Abbey. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and I felt so bad because she did this marvelous Miss Moreland talk where she was totally, you know, saying, you know, you know, we all, and then, she, then someone posed the question, why do we all think Catherine Moreland is dumb? You know, why do, why are we always putting down her, her intelligence? She actually is a great judge of character and very intuitive. So Arnie raised his hand and he got up and he said, The narrators in Austin, Austin's narrators, are all heavily colored by the personality of the heroine. And Catherine herself is the least narcissistic heroine. She always undercuts herself. She doesn't have any confidence in herself. So the way the story is framed, we don't either. But then when you take a step back and you take an objective look at everything that's happening, everything that's being said, everything that's going on, and her instincts about people, she turns out to be spot on. And the crowd went wild. (laughs) It was like, oh my God, it's so true. Well, as we would say in the role-playing game world, she has a high intelligence, she has a high wisdom score, low intelligence, right? (laughs) (laughs) Arnie called her... Socratic, meaning that she was she's constantly making these assumptions, but then testing these assumptions, yes, questioning everything, yeah. Yeah. Say, say, but including was... herself. She also questions her own reactions to things a lot of the time. Maybe not necessarily where she should, like you know, accusing someone of murder. But yeah, yeah no, great, right. it was a great point. Right. And we, I looked at Kristen, and I was just like head blown. It was <laughs> crazy. 
<laughs> yeah, that was great. And um, but I I want to talk too about if we're getting into the academic side of things about something that you didn't not you did not accompany me on, which was uh, the William and Mary Walking Tour and Swim Library special collection tour yes this was friday morning Kristen did this on her own and i stayed in the hotel room and was a giant lump i mean and i've been to swim library a lot so i didn't feel the need to <laughs> this is the on-campus main library <laughs> i don't i don't really remember going there more than five times i mean when i was went to william and mary i majored in chemistry i wasn't going to be a librarian so i didn't have any fundamental interest and yeah, uh, so I don't. I remember when they remodeled it. They put in all of those shelves where you can crank to, to uh -huh. save space. You can crank them to move them closer, far apart, so they can cram more books in. And the history section was in the basement. And I just remember one thinking I was in a horror movie, and two being sure I was going to get crushed between these movable bookshelves <laughs> at some point in my college career. It did not happen. Oh, yes. They're terrifying. And when I was at William & Mary, I, I was in chemistry, and we, we used a product online called SciFinder, which, funny side note, I used it and had no idea how it worked. Then later in my career, became intimately familiar with it <laughs> and was horrified at just how poorly I had been using it when I was actually a student who was supposedly benefiting from it. And anyway, I went, I went, any rate, I went on this William Mary walking tour and I honestly was pretty sorry that I had done it, um, walking around William and Mary when I, a place where I had been very, very ill and unhappy and, uh, was thinking to myself, this is, this is a giant mistake. And then we got to swim. We got down to the lower level with this special collections are, which is incredibly beautiful library and beautiful facility. They have a theater and they have art exhibits and it's just, it'll knock your socks off. Yeah. I just um, want to point out that that was all done. Like the last year I was there, they agree. demoed the whole library, made it gorgeous just in time for me to graduate. Sorry. I'm a little, uh, bitter. <laughs> I, I can tell you're a little bitter. Okay. This is gonna blow your mind. What they had there was something called the George Holbert Tucker Collection. So this guy was a guy who never went to college. He was a journalist. He worked for the Virginian Pilot in like the 70s and 80s, became an obsessive fan of Jane Austen, and in the age before the internet, went around doing as much research as he could and collecting as many details as he could about her life to the point where he was writing to librarians in England, writing to parishes in England saying, hey, do you have this relative of Jane Austen buried in your churchyard? I'm trying to verify these records. He had collected so much stuff that is easy to find now on the internet, but would have been incredibly difficult to find before and had notebook after notebook after notebook, not, about her, not only about her, but about her literary contemporaries, people she would have read, plays she would have seen, actors who would have been in those plays, a uh, timeline and chronology of her life, her family tree, um, and, and all of his research is there. And so it's, it's valuable a little bit for the content, but more as like a, an artifact of an obsessive fan. So these fan studies, there's a, there was a scholar there, Sarah Glasson, who wrote a book. It's coming out in 2020. It is called Performing Jane, a cultural history of Jane Austen fandom. She is at William and Mary. She's a scholar at William and Mary, and she was doing this research for this book. 
and she decided to Google the names of everybody who attended the first annual general meeting of JASNA in America, right? So she's Googling all these names. She Googles George Holbert Tucker, knowing nothing about him. And the first thing that pops up is a link to the Women Mary Library, you know, special collections. And she's like, what's this? He had donated these research, these research notebooks to the SWEM library who accepted them in the 80s, immediately did nothing with them and just put them in off-site storage, never to be thought of again. She, by chance, finds a reference to him, gets them to pull the collection, and for the first time goes through all of this incredible research. And it's at her exact same college. What are the freaking yeah, chances? What a crazy coincidence. I know. And... And it, it was I mean, just William and Mary has some name recognition, but it's a small state school still. It's not like Harvard or Yale. You know, I'm just I think that's so amazing. Yeah, it was. And and we spent everybody on that tour spent an hour just enraptured in his notebooks. And I learned some things and I took a ton of pictures that I thought were really interesting. I, I was surprised at a lot of the things that I saw. I won't even get into it here. But well, it's not everyone who has your love for old notebooks, Kristen. <laughs> all her annotation, all his annotations and handwriting are, are there. And yeah. And so, but her thing is George Holbert Tucker was performing fandom in his own way. He never intended to get published as far as she could tell. It was like an obsessive collector. And so, um, and the extending the theme of fan studies, that was really special to have seen. I just think that's so cool. It was cool. I'm excited for her book. Yeah, me too. I'll definitely check it out. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so did, did you get my joke earlier where I was making the dead leaves joke? No. What did you Sense say? and Sensibility. What did you say? When I said that not everyone has your love of old notebooks. Oh, I didn't get it. Oh, I'm, I'm a terrible. That's Austin. okay. It was a pretty deep dive. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just so misunderstood. Um, okay, so then we met up again, and we had lunch with Arnie. Yay! We got to meet Arnie in the flesh. Yes. Um, can I talk to, we talked about, we mentioned Jocelyn Harrison, what she said. At, in the very last part of her talk, she came out and dropped the bomb. To me, it was a bomb. That she thinks the Rice portrait is genuine. Yeah. She showed an academic article where somebody had taken the Rice portrait and taken that famous portrait that Cassandra did of Jane where she's looking really bitchy with her crossed arms and merged them together to, and sort of showed that they could be the same face, so the face of a younger Jane Austen. He did the same thing with a portrait from Stanier... Oh, God... Danny or Clark, the uh, the Prince of Wales's librarian or something was a groupie of Jane Austen. Drew what everybody suspects is actually a picture of Jane Austen, but it's almost like a fashion plate. She has a very doll like look. So then they did a merge of that with the Rice portrait as well. And honestly, it just kind of blew my mind. And she she said she's like everyone was in the right place at the right time. And she, um, you know, Osiris Humphrey returned to England. He didn't have money. He painted Francis Austin. And then she thinks Francis Austin threw a bone to Osiris Humphrey and said, paint Jane. I'll pay you to paint Jane. But, you yeah. know, it's just, I, I was surprised. I didn't realize support for the right rice portrait was that mainstream. I thought that was, and she just kind of, someone, uh, someone asked her 
I think it was a question since she had showed it. So, so are you saying that you believe it? And she was like, yeah. If you look <laughs> in, like, in her lovely accent, in her <laughs> lovely little, she's very short, in her lovely little Kiwi accent, she's like, well, yes. <laughs> Um, so just to talk about generally how the conference was structured. So starting on Friday afternoon, we kind of got into the main events. So the way it works is there are three plenary sessions, which are kind of the big name presentations. And there's one on Friday afternoon, one on Saturday morning, and one on Sunday right after brunch. And then in between the plenaries on the other days, there are what are called breakout sessions, which are sort of um, shorter, also paper presentations. And when you registered, you had your choice of about six different breakout sessions for each block that you could choose from. So Kristen and I sometimes went to different breakout sessions that were happening at the same time. Um, but it was nice because you could kind of tailor it for whatever your particular interest was in the fandom. Yeah. And some of them absolutely blew my mind. I mean, I have pages and pages of notes. Is there one that you specifically wanted to talk about? I really enjoyed one on Friday afternoon called Northanger Abbey and the History of the Fictional Female Detective. And this was all about talking about Catherine Moreland and then using her as kind of the first example of a female detective and then not really so much tracing the lineage uh, but just talking about the ways in which she embodies your very typical 20th century female detective in literature. So there was a lot of Nancy Drew discussion. I, of course, had to get in a Veronica Mars reference because that's <laughs> how I roll. Um, I also really enjoyed um, on Saturday morning a presentation who, from an English professor at William & Mary, which I didn't know when I signed up for it. But it was called Jane Austen, Gothic Novelist. <laughs> and it was basically going through the typical elements of a Gothic novel and showing the ways in which Northanger Abbey meets or doesn't meet. You know, it's supposed to be a satire of a Gothic novel, but did Jane Austen actually succeed in writing a Gothic novel? And I think we can all agree the answer is no, because the point was to not do that. But one of the things that was mentioned, which I thought was really interesting, was that if you look at the, the, the kind of basic tenets of a gothic heroine, Eleanor Tilney <laughs> yeah. could have been a gothic heroine. Mother died, mysterious circumstances, controlling father, living in a big creepy abbey, rich but kept from her true love because of class. You know, it's all there. For sure. And it sounded so interesting when you told me about it. I was like, oh, I was so sad. So many good things were at the same time. I was so sad to miss it. And I went to one called Lovable Heroine Complicated Hero, Implied Meanings in the Conversations of Northanger Abbey. Oh, I think um, we were both at that one. That one was very interesting as well. And what, one point she made is that Henry has a lot of interests that are stereotypically women's interests, novels, muslin. He's comfortable with whiz women. He's comfortable talking to them. He's constantly pretending that he understands their sex, right? He's making all these comments about, well, your sex is good at writing letters, blah, blah, blah. Um, he's pretending to understand women better than they do themselves. But then his judgment about Isabella Thorpe is actually wrong. Like, mm. He thinks that Isabella Thorpe will not jump ship for Frederick. 
when she actually does. Then when Catherine gets the letter, he's convinced that Frederick is going to marry Isabella. He has everything all wrong about that. Um, and the other point that I loved is that um, the teachableness of Catherine, he's constantly talking about like the purity of her mind. Mm-hmm. That at the end of the book, when Austin says, well, the reason they fell in love is his gratitude for her, that she was interested in him. A close reading of the text, he's actually always praising her true good qualities, which is her her sort of mental, it's naivety, but it's also purity, right? Yeah. They're um, sweet together. They're, I think sweet. they're sweet. They're sweet. <laughs> we'll have to, um, there was a lot of, one of the things that we'll talk about when we revisit Northanger Abbey and several of the discussions focused on this was whether Henry Tilney is a good example of a, I want to say, what's the opposite of toxic masculinity? You know, we all, most of, most Austin fans really like Henry Tilney. And while the, a lot of the discussions about Catherine focused on kind of Catherine as being awesome, there was a lot of discussion as to whether Henry Tilney is as awesome as we've Mm -hmm. held him up to be for so long. Um, And I think everyone kind of came down on the side of for a 19th slash 18th century guy, he was pretty enlightened when it comes to women. Yeah. And he is sort of pretending that he wasn't for the sake of comedy. (laughs) Right. But I mean, he's not like a paragon of equality in this world, but he did seem to appreciate, like you were saying, Catherine's qualities. And she's not as dumb as a bag of rocks. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, everyone. Sorry. But then someone got up, by the way, someone did get up after all this praise of Catherine Moreland. Oh yes. This was great. Got up, got to the mic. And she was like, excuse me, Catherine Moreland really offends me she's a guest in northanger abbey she goes wandering around the home snooping into rooms uninvited it's terrible manners and everybody was like oh snap i think it was something i think it was something she was english it was something like i'm sorry but i've just never been able to forgive her supreme lack of manners she broke in to their mother's apartments and snooped through all her things. And I've just never been able to forgive that breach of the hospitality that was offered to her. And everyone was like, okay, good point. And then I looked at Kristen and said, okay, but I do that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in people's houses. (laughs) I'm going to look in your medicine cabinet. Sure, sure. you know, I mean, I probably won't imagine there's a murder plot. Probably not. Maybe, depending <laughs> on who you are. <laughs> that was hysterical. But she's um, also 17. I mean, come on. I, I would have done that. Right. And, you know, there was a lot of talk at the conference about the meaning of Northanger Abbey contrasted with Austin's other works. There was actually a session I went to about Northanger Abbey, the bridge to Austin's mature works. Mm -hmm. And I posted on a Facebook page. I was like, how did I ever think that this was one of her more minor, her more minor novel? It's when you read it again, it's absolutely hysterical. It's so mature. But, uh, you know, Devney Lozer said in a session, Northanger Abbey is one of her most important works because she's asking, what does it mean to read and write? What can women do? What is the extent of women you know, that women can do. And I went to a session, the session about the mature works 
which was done by an author, a guy who was an author himself. And he said something that blew me away. <laughs> Kristen's mind was just continuously blown. Continuously blown. <laughs> but he was Entire like, look, weekend. when you look at the structure and some of the passages in Northanger Abbey, then you look at the juvenilia and the kind of parodies of Gothic works that she was writing when she was younger, you can see that Northanger Abbey had a first draft that was far, far more like the satirical juvenilia. Um, when you read the passages of the author talking about how, you know, the heroine is not the Gothic novelist novel heroine you might expect, and all of these things, watering a rose bush, nursing a dormouse, et cetera, there are times in the novel when we slip back into this tone of, of incredibly comic satire that he thinks are, are, are sort of fingerprints of an earlier draft. And so she actually did start off writing a straight gothic novel. Just a straight gothic, silly gothic. And then was like, well, this isn't me. <laughs> like some of her other stuff, like some, like Catholic, you know, the Bower or whatever. Um, and then took it and fleshed it out and wrote a more serious story. Well, then he got up in front of it. He was up in front of God and everybody. And he was like, it doesn't work for me. And I was like, what? Um, but he was saying things like, well, when you look at the comic passage of her coming home after being kicked out of Northern Abbey in the hack chaise, um, the author, Jane Austen, the serious author, has already established the pathos. But then the comedic, younger Jane Austen's passage is like, oh, pathos cannot touch this embarrassing scene I'm about to write. And he pointed out that she had already established the pathos. Well, but I... I can see what he's saying there, but honestly it does work and it works so well because what I think is that you just read that comic voice as a Gothic novelist who is very confused because he or she has been asked to write a real story. So it's constantly that novelist talking about how uncomfortable they are with a real life realities, which is brilliant and brilliantly executed. And I love it to death. But his original point about there being sort of two different narrative styles, I guess I can kind of see. And and I, I love that just hypothesis, this literary, literary sleuthing that we're doing. I just need to reread the book. I know. I reread the book uh, to go to this conference, but I, I need to reread it again because so many interesting things were said. He, he, this guy also said Austin creates literary selfies with her clever digressions as herself, as an author. For example, like, um, you know, talking about if one heroine does not patronize the a heroine of one no novel does not patronize the heroine of another. Um, let me come up with his name since I have... The, are we talking about the third plenary session? No, oh, I am I talking remember. about the, the same, the literary selfies. I, I am going to push back on the literary selfie thing because I... It really gets my, I don't know, what's the phrase I'm looking for for when you find something, I guess my hackles up. When people try to get autobiographical information from works of fiction. I don't think he's trying to get autobiographical information. He's just, she, he's just saying in Northanger Abbey, she starts talking about herself as a writer. And so it's almost you like... You mean the narrator talks about herself as a writer? Yes. Or Jane Austen? Well, Jane Austen, the narrator. <laughs> but, I mean, here's the thing. Like, 
we don't know that Jane Austen herself is the narrator could be a whole other character that she well, created. Well, yeah, that's true. I don't know, but which is kind of Arnie's point, right? Right. Well, that's absolutely true. Well, so let me just say this guy's name. This guy's name is Collins Hemingway. Oh, um, come on. That can't I know, be his right? real name. <laughs> um, is that Mon- really his real name? He, Collins Hemingway. That's okay. What well, there's nothing that he could have done but become an English literature professor because that's like I know, right? <laughs> craziest name. Um. Oh. So anyway, yeah, that's that's those were his ideas that just really surprised me. There was just a lot of it's somebody I forget who it was, but said that when they tell or it was one of when they were introducing um maybe it was the president of Jasner or something. I don't know. The story's not making much sense, but when someone was speaking. Uh, to the entire group, I think it was at the brunch on Sunday, she said, when I tell people about Jasna, they go, there's only six novels. What do you talk about? <laughs> and there's so much to talk about. There's so much to talk about. <laughs> and oh my God. And like I was saying in a previous podcast about uh, during one of the Among the Janite podcasts, I said, the farther you get away the text, the less interested that I am. That was absolutely not true of Jasna. And it especially was not true about the plenary that I thought I would be least interested in, which was Jane Austen and the Reformation by Roger Moore. And he was hysterical in his intro, by the way. He was an amazing presenter, no matter what he's discussing about. That was really interesting, though. It was about, um, well, because Northanger Abbey, it's a family that is now living in an abbey that had previously been... Uh, you know, the home of monks. And in the Reformation, King Henry VIII closed down all the monasteries, kicked everyone out. And some of the buildings were then gifted to rich landed gentry nobles. And apparently, uh, presumably, that is how the Tilneys came in possession of it. And he was talking about all the times that she refers to its monastic past or references the Reformation and what happened and uh, to be honest with all the plenaries, just reading the descriptions, I was like, hmm, this sounds a little dry. And then I always found it so interesting. <laughs> it was so good. The violence of the Tilney family even having the Abbey was something that her readers would have picked up on. And we would not. I mean, we just wouldn't. And even it apparently even was a new like in the public consciousness in her day and age. The Reformation, of course, as as Roger Moore said in his introduction, when he tells people that he his work is called Jane Austen and the Reformation, they say, wasn't Jane Austen after the Reformation? <laughs> <laughs> but it was still in the public discourse that that had happened in Austen's lifetime. And people were still shocked at this sort of reclaiming of the land that had been consecrated to God. I thought it was... It was really great. It was fascinating. It was fantastic. Arnie was beside himself. He was loving it. He was taking so many notes. But but yeah. Uh, so I also want to talk about the second plenary session, which was on Saturday morning, um, which was Janine Barkas and the lost copies of Northanger Abbey. And she focused on, she did a lot of research, which was fascinating, on all of the kind of cheap reprints of Jane Austen's novels, specifically Northanger Abbey, that came into vogue in the latter part of the 1800s and then the 1900s. They were sold in train stations, you know, for six shillings or anywhere you could buy a newspaper 
Um, they were gifted to students for academic achievements, or as we saw an example of attendance achievements. Yeah. Um, all the different covers, all the different editions. And what was so fascinating is that it turned out they were using the same printing plates the entire time. So fixing movable type is very expensive. Every time you want to print a book to kind of have someone put every letter, it's very labor intensive and very expensive. So what they would do is just create, you know, sheets, um, some form of metal sheet that they could run the paper off of over and over again. The company that owned them would then, you know, rent them or they just moved through various hands. Every single one of those copies of Northanger Abbey used the, for a hundred years, use the exact same sheets to print the plates. And you could see the flaws becoming greater and greater as they degraded. That was fascinating. That was but every single one was the same. Everything inside the pages, even as the quality of the paper got really shitty because they were so cheap, right? Right. It, it was exactly the same. It was so, it was so cool. It was and, so funny. And of course they all said a new edition. Yeah. A new edition. It was like, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. the covers were hysterical. Oh, yes. But the part I found most fascinating is she found a couple of those lost copies where people had written their name, uh, you know, because one girl got it in, what was it, like 1910 in Ireland. She was yeah. given it for an attendance award. She wrote her name and um, her address. And she was able to do research, genealogical research, find this family, find details about them it turned out the girl who'd been gifted the book had died only a few weeks later. Uh, what was it? Typhoid? Diphtheria. Like Diphtheria. And she found another copy that had been in like the 1950s in a, in a library. She found the woman who had checked it out. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and called her up. Oh, so funny. And the woman says, well, I don't remember checking out the book, but my sister went through a big Jane Austen phase. I'm sure that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> That's just tracing the lives of the readers. And she, she was saying you have an idea of who the reader of Jane Austen was. You have this mental model. And then when you actually do your research and figure out who owned these copies, uh, they are young, young school children. And also they are of the working classes. And also um, many of them were boys. Yes. And also many of them were boys. And, and the, the covers were very floral. But she said, well, we don't understand in the vernacular of the time, things like lilies, they were a religious symbol. They, would, they wouldn't have been gendered, you know, so. Well, also things were not gendered yeah. like they are now until, right. you know, after the, Victor- the Victorian. And so. I think she talked about the pinking of Jane Austen. I, she yeah. was involved in that display at the Shakespeare, Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C., if you ever saw that. Where I did, was, actually. Yeah, it, it was talking about the pinking of Jane Austen, how all the covers became hot pink at a certain <laughs> at a certain yeah. era. Um, that 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 talk was so fast, fascinating and fantastic. I immediately went and bought her book, which is very heavy, but it's like a it's like a coffee table book. It's it's beautiful and in color, and all the pictures of the um, the copies are there, including uh, there was this weird Victorian phase where the covers of novels were illustrated to look um, Asian. Yeah. So it was it's this called weird, like, Orientalism. Yes. It was this like weird phase of Orientalism where just think of a like very typical Asian looking font. Yeah. And it was just, it was so weird. And I think she even said, she's like, thank goodness this only lasted <laughs> a couple of years. It was not a trend that caught on. Yeah. Um, but they they were hysterical to see and just 
just blows your mind that, as you said, the things we can find to talk about. There are, is a world of Austin, as as Demi Lozer said in The Making of Jane Austen, it's not cult, just cultural de- detritus, right? These are connected to real people in real lives and, and impact how we think about the author today because of all these iterations she went through. I have always been moved by tangible representations of history and so just the idea that these, and a lot of people feel this way about Shakespeare too, the idea that these stories have stayed in the forefront of our cultural memory and knowledge and all the different people who have experienced them and interpreted them and they've played a role no matter how small or large in all these different people's lives. I just always find that thinking about that and examples of that very moving. So oh to see the book that this little girl had written her name in. Oh, I know. So many years ago, it was just is very, it's just very emotional. I didn't cry or anything. I'm sure Kristen did. Uh, (laughs) Thanks. I just find that I just find these, uh, like I said, tangible representations of history are always what kind of get me excited. Oh my god! Oh, and how much did you love H.G. Wells's copy of I don't know Pride and Prejudice or whatever that he inscribed to his wife? He was a gift to his wife, and he inscribed it. Okay, Award we, for good conduct. See, it was okay. That <laughs> so cute. I, I'm like, oh my god, H.G. Wells at Pride and Prejudice. Like H.G. Wells, what a dick. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was probably just like if, Josh. Let me just Brown. put it this way: if they walked in and was like, "I bought you a book and wrote in it for good conduct," I would probably <laughs> throw it at his face. <laughs> But you see, the joke is because they were often awarded for good conduct, and that was yeah. But it's a bullshit joke. It's not funny. It's horrible. Um, I laugh. What I thought was the most mind blowing, though, and I I think it was was it th it was th Lawrence or was it th White? I can't remember. One of them wrote fanfic. Oh, it was White. Yeah, I don't yeah, think it was Yeah, T.H. White. They had found some old writings of his, and one of them, I can't remember which one it was, maybe Pride and Prejudice, he had actually written Jane Austen fan fiction. Amazing. And it was, I was just sitting there with my mouth, my, my jaw dropped, literally. I just couldn't believe it. It was so funny to me that this, you know, really famous author from, you know, another century had practiced, or just like people do now. <laughs> on the internet, writing Jane Austen fan fiction. So don't it. tell me that fan fiction is not legitimate. Yeah. Don't tell us that. Yeah, don't tell me that. I don't oh read it, God. but don't tell me that. <laughs> How cool was it to see Mark Twain's copy? Of... Yeah, F that guy, right? You F read that it. Guy. He I, liked I it. Know. Not only did he read it, he owned it. And then yeah. to be making these snarky comments like, it's a good library, having no book of Jane Austen in it. It's like, you owned Jane Austen, folks. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't, I I don't buy it. Though, that Mark will. Twain would definitely, yeah. Mark Twain would say stuff just to get a rise uh-huh. out of people. Don't you think? Of course. He was that type. Samuel Clemens, he was that type. Yeah. A dick. <laughs> <laughs> So he and H.G. Wells should hang out. They'd probably get along great. I think it's a touching moment of marital joshing. You would. <laughs> what does that even mean? I don't know. I just think if Kevin did that to you, that is a very Kevin thing to do, though. It is a Kevin thing Kevin to do. Would do it. Kevin likes to make 
not misogynist. Well, okay, misogynistic jokes, but as, as like satire. He's, like if I was a misogynist, this. Is, but he does it to point out how ridiculous that mindset and viewpoint is. He does. It's and irony, right? I give him a hard time. And I think it was one of, one of our other podcasts. He was like, the day I die, I'm just going to whisper to you, I was a misogynist all along. <laughs> it, it wasn't irony. I meant every word. <laughs> but I just, that kind of, I, but I, I do not have high hopes that H.G. Wells has a sense of humor as refined and as complicated as Kevin don't give your wife something for good behavior. That's fine. No. And, um, and so there's one more thing I want to talk about that kind of blew my mind, which was Devony Lozer's talk. She discussed the title of Northanger Abbey and how it was assigned after Austin's death. I had no idea. Was that no idea? I had no idea. Oh yeah. And the original title of the work was Susan. And then I would, I always wondered why she changed it. Well, Devony, Lozer has all these primary sources and she's like look at two years later or whatever after the novel was sold and then of course never published another gothic novel called Susan came out and was very popular so of course when it was republished finally all those years later she had changed the name of it because she didn't want to write a second book titled Susan but there's a passage in Northanger Abbey again it's the one about heroines and novels patronizing each other um, and she she writes a list of the Cecilia, Camilla, Belinda, all of the novels that she thinks are so brilliant, the Fanny Burney and the Mariah Edgeworth novels, they all have names of heroines as their titles. And so it's because she's sort of having a dialogue with these other authors and herself in a way, it makes total sense to think that she would have wanted the novel to be called Catherine because it's jokingly putting itself in their herb, in their lineup. And um, she, Devaney also said that the books, the Edgeworth and Bernie um, books that came out, they have subtitles. Instead of saying a novel, they say a little work or a moral tale. And Loser thinks that, Dr. Loser thinks that in that passage um, about heroines patronizing other heroines of other novels, Austin might have been prompting, in a way, Mariah Edgeworth and Fanny Burney to hit, claim it, own it, say, hey, I wrote a novel. And it's just, it was really fascinating to dig into that kind of thing and figure out what title she might have been interested. I never, I never put it together that the word Northanger is North Anger either, the two uh... words. <laughs> um, I don't like but, it. <laughs> yeah, but she was sort of saying... That's probably not the right way to think of it. And Cassandra even wrote it, North-Hanger, uh, when yeah. she was writing out a list of all the novels and when they were written. So, so yeah, I don't know. Just that deep dive into the title was really fascinating, too. Interesting. Uh, so, Devaney actually gave me a moment of panic because after she figured out like who we were and like our podcast and everything. She sent me a personal friend request on Facebook. And I was like, Oh my God, what do I do? Because all I do is post stupid memes. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God. But this is someone that I actually respect. So, <laughs> do I say yes? Do I not say yes? I know. It was funny. I texted Kristen in panic. What do I do? <laughs> 
And Kristen had to teach me, like, well, you can create groups of yeah, people. I had to teach her about, you're a baby boomer. I mean, you're just a boomer, and that's what you Excuse are. Excuse me. What? <laughs> you don't know about What friends. did you just call me? The fact that we're still on Facebook kind of dates us a little, doesn't okay, it? Okay, but I'm on Instagram. <laughs> I know what TikTok is. We are both very new entrants. just called me a baby boomer. Instagram. We are both very new entrants to Instagram. I'm a zennial, okay? <laughs> no, it's true. I'm born in 1980. I'm like right on the, co- I'm not quite a millennial, although technically I might be considered one, but I had an analog childhood and a digital right, adulthood. Right, right. But I know how to Facebook. <laughs> at least you don't sign all your facebook posts like love maggie love dad (laughs) (laughs) my friend posted something on facebook the other day um and he said so the baby boomers are saying millennials are destroying everything and then two seconds later they're asking me how to open a pdf (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'm just saying that it was the first time I've actually had, because I tell family when they friend me, I'll be like, look, some I use salty language, you know, I do this, I do that. And everyone's like, oh, that's fine. And I don't care. That's fine. But this was the first time someone had actually friended me where I was concerned about the persona I might present. So well, tell you, you'll if you're listening, I hope you like stupid memes. <laughs> Yeah, right. Own it. Yeah, yeah, right. I I followed a professional acquaintance on Twitter one time, and he he direct messaged me, and he said, "You are about to be very disappointed <laughs> if you followed me for fascinating professional insight." Uh, I should have known because his uh, avatar was uh, Bullwinkle, so <laughs> I knew it wasn't a professional account. I was like, "Don't worry, John." <laughs> So anyway, just put John on blast, by the way. Um, it's okay. He won't be listening to this. Aw. You know. But maybe we'll have new listeners. Maybe we will have new listeners. Maybe we will. And welcome to any new listeners that we have. And um, is there any... Well, we haven't talked about the ball, really, specifically. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's talk about the ball. So Kristen and I got all dolled up. We looked flamazing, if I say so myself. <laughs> We took many pictures, and so then there was a social hour where on the lawn and the kind of hallway, big hallway outside the big banquet room, they had bars set up, and you could see everyone's outfits, and Baranda was there in the most incredible costume. She was the ghost of Mrs. Tilney, wearing kind of a more, not Regency, but whatever period was before Regency gown had painted her entire body this like dead body gray and wrote Catherine was right on her forehead. It was um it was phenomenal. We were, I died. I was like, this is the most clever thing. And we I didn't get close enough to see it was Baranda, but we were both like, I bet that's Baranda. And it was only later on the the one of the Instagram posts that Leanne did, that you can read her name tag. And it definitely was. And then our friend Jennifer, who we met through Arnie, came as Lady Catherine from Pride and and Prejudice and Zombies. She had her eye patch. She had her katana. It was amazing. It was awesome. So cool. 
everybody killed it with the um with the dressing and the costumes yeah. i love the twist ones though those are the ones that i was very much like cost it's 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 more cosplay than it is just period clothing uh so and it was so creative so i just loved that so Kristen and i we had a little drinky drink um <laughs> And then they did. They do. Uh, they brought us in for the for the banquet, and we had a table with Arnie and some acquaintances of his, which were fascinating people. Had and we got to sit with Leanne and chat with her. Uh, the food was great. I thought. Yeah, I'm sure really this good. is the exciting commentary you all have tuned in for. But the food was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and we got to promenade. Yes, and then after dinner, uh, everyone lined up in the hallway, and we promenaded through the hotel down to Duke of Gloucester Street, which is the main street through Colonial Williamsburg, up to the Governor's Palace, where I think we hooked up with a ghost tour. Yeah. It sounded like someone was telling a ghost story. And then we promenaded back uh, into the ballroom, which they had flipped in time for the ball. And by the time we were kind of at the end of the line of the promenade, and when we got back, there were just hundreds of people dancing it was so cool it was quite a thing to see and we we took a facebook live video of it that has been shared by like so many different local jasna chapters it's really fun yeah and so this is another thing though that surprised me about jasna they did not appear to have any kind of social media coordinator uh, there was someone and i don't want to make that sound insulting if there was there what they did have a facebook account there was an instagram account and people were sharing things um but leanne wasn't given access to them so she had to kind of give them to people to share it was kind of confusing but i had never seen actual video of the ball yeah. Me so I had no idea what to expect. So I yeah. definitely wanted to put something up there so people could get an idea. And it was just so amazing to see, you know, so cool. all of these people dancing. And people were good at it. Yeah. Some and thank people... God they had a collar. <laughs> you know, they had a collar like, yeah, like they, a square they dance with. She did a great job too. So Kristen and I did not dance at the ball. We did take the dance workshop. Which I thought I did okay. I wasn't great. It was great, really but... fun. I was also really tired because I had like flown in the, the day before and just had not caught up on sleep. And so I was having a blast, but then I sort of hit a fatigue wall and had to sit up out for the last two dances. And then it's really much harder than you think it is. Yes. It, 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 it is so, so much harder than you think bandwidth. it is. Yeah. Listener, it is hard. Listener. You have to know there's like one there's like one couple and a two couple because you're usually in blocks of four but sometimes you're in blocks of three and your designation determines which direction you turn and where you go and sometimes your designation changes because when you get to the end of the line one couple will have to stand out so hard and then remember. when you come back in you're a different number and everything's up it was hard it was so hard it was, hard. It was like it an IQ me. test gives me much more appreciation for the actors who not only have to dance, but have to do dialogue <laughs> and yeah, act. I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so we did not dance at the ball, but we had amazing conversations with Arnie and Deborah Yaffe and the drunk Austin people and our listeners and new friends and old friends. It was just, it was so fun. It just went by really quickly. I thought. Yes, and we learned so much, and we saw so many primary sources, you know, people who have really done their research and dug into the archives, and we, you know, we couldn't really take any pictures or share presentations because it was intellectual property that was not ours. Um, I have to say that I learned a lot about doing this kind of literary research and historical research and using primary sources. 
when I came home, um, a firsthand account of how my husband spent his time was not available. It had been lost to the ages. But I was able to dig up in the archives of my unsorted mail a receipt. And this receipt is from the grocery store Trader Joe's. Oh, my God. (laughs) It is dated one of the days that I was not at my home. And there are three items on the receipt. Can Um, I guess? Can I guess? (laughs) Is one of them beer? No, believe it or not, no. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. They, um, that is a really good guess, though. Hot cocoa cereal, TJ's O's. JoJo's chocolate vanilla, which, as you know, are cookies. And peanut butter pretzels, no salt. Kevin had a <laughs> fucking party while we were gone, and I, I missed it. a one-man party. That sounds like a rad night. Get some Netflix. But here's You're... what you do. Here's what you do. You crumble up the cookies. You crush up the cereal and the and the pretzels. And you combine it all with marshmallow cream, like you make Rice Krispie treats, and you make a treat version. And that would be amazing. That sounds incredible. Or with vanilla ice cream. Both of those things sound incredible. But yes. the man knows how to party. Uh, we'll, just, does, we'll just get yeah. him. He must have already had the um, the crack to accompany. <laughs> <laughs> I know uh, you're right. Um, he doesn't. He's not drinking alcoholic beer anymore. So if he had been, beer would have been on this uh, receipt as well. I have no doubt. How interesting. Good for Kevin. Now he's a teetotaler. Well, he's doing Which it ever since. Party. Ever since I learned that word, <laughs> you have to. Remember. I feel like I have to use it. But seriously, I'm actually kind of upset that I wasn't in Boise for that. Hella rockin' night that Kevin had. Did you night. talk to him about these purchases? I did confront him with the receipt, but he was cagey. You <laughs> <laughs> have to put the screw to him. He saw me taking a picture of it, and he was like, what are you doing? I'm going to post it on my on the Facebook page. <laughs> be like, this primary source. <laughs> I would like to point out that in the tradition of Catherine Moreland, you did exercise your skills as a female detective. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> Catherine and Nancy Drew would be very proud of you, Kristen. A true slave. Slave. That's <laughs> <laughs> funny, listeners, because Maggie, when she was a child, thought the word was pronounced slave. Because instead of sleuth, because I just read a lot, but didn't have friends to talk to about what I was reading. Another word I always mispronounce still is one you used earlier on the podcast. And I was fascinated to hear you say it correctly. Is it Orv? Irv? Irv. That's it. I read that word all the time. No clue how to pronounce it. It's like Irvra. Irvra. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I used it right. Now I'm second guessing myself. I'm pretty sure you did. I mean, you saw how I blew through Jocelyn Harris's title. All right. <laughs> well, hopefully our listeners will give us not such a hard time because it's Friday night and it's been a very long week. I Since I came back from Jasna, I feel like I've lived at least three wor- weeks worth of time. So much work had piled up and I'm exhausted. And now after I get off this podcast, I am going to bed. So on that note, I think we should go to the Wheat Chief. Yes, let us go to the Wheat Chief. 
Well, we have a letter from a reader, um, which we really appreciate. And I have not even written back to yet because I'm a troll and a bad person, but I'm just really tired. But Jennifer from Northern Germany, who wrote us once before about loving persuasion, the 2007 persuasion with Sally Hawkins, even though I said it had was depressing and had the depressing score and everything. And she says she finished last night the Sense and Sensibility from 1995, the Emma Thompson one, and she is not a huge fan of it. And so she was wondering whether we plan on ever talking about the 2008 BBC adaptation of Sense and Sensibility, which is her favorite. And so it's interesting because Jennifer and I have exactly opposite tastes in Austin adaptations. Um, and I do think we should talk about the 2008 Sense and Sensibility at some point. Yeah, I remember watching it with you at your townhouse at the time when it yeah. aired. Because, you know, PBS, they did all of them on Masterpiece Theater um, that spring when they all the new adaptations came out. And I don't think I've seen it since. Well, I told so this. It's been 11 told, years. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I did rewatch it because one of our fans, Ian, said, what about that one? And I rewatched it. And just like we never, I never did a podcast with you about it, but I just like rewatched it out of my own curiosity and still did not, was not really won over. I've, I've told the story on the podcast before, but I had a, a friend who was super into the Emma Thompson one, like super into it. And she was also Downton Abbey fan. So she was mad at me when she found out that there was a sense and sensibility with Dan Stevens. And she was like mad at Holy me. Holy shit, is Dan Stevens in that? And he certainly is. And she's like, before he was famous? Yeah, before he was famous. That's right. How did you never tell me? And I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, girl, <laughs> I knew she was going to hate it. And she 100% hated it. She's like, I'm, she texted me several hours later. She's like, I'm turning it off. I can't do it. <laughs> I thought that Jennifer's email was very nice. And I was excited very she's from Northern Germany because I will be in Northern Germany in December as part of my honeymoon trip. And I thought it was the nicest most respectful way to tell someone they're wrong <laughs> that I've ever read <laughs> I really enjoy, she it was something like I really enjoy hearing your point of views even when they're different than mine and you know I really like this version blah blah, blah. I'm like so basically <laughs> hey it's okay to wrong. question our judgment absolutely one, one day one day we are going to do a podcast on the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. One day we are going to do a podcast on that horrible Mansfield Park. Uh, I already said it's horrible and I shouldn't have. Oops. And we will try. You know what? You know what would be really funny, Maggie? And I've been thinking about this. Okay, what? When we do the podcast about that Mansfield Park, the Patricia Rosima one, the rule should be that I am not allowed to swear. Ooh. On the entire podcast. Are we going to do a commentary or discussion? No, 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 no. Well, we're not doing commentary. I There's no way I'd be able to get through it. But we can Or just... how about this? You are allowed to swear, but every time you do, you have to do a hilarious beep, beep it out <laughs> noise. So it's just like constantly beep. And then I can't believe that that beep, she was like beep. <laughs> well that I wouldn't be very that much has more comedic potential i i i i don't know i think it would be pretty funny for our listeners knowing that the f-bomb is in the back of my mind and that i cannot 
get catharsis. Now, do I have to abide by these same rules? You don't. Okay, good. Uh, but I do want to just say that I love that everyone is comfortable enough to write in when they disagree because it's always good to hear yes. what other people, especially with something as subjective as art. Let's have a dialogue. Uh, yeah. So I say we're right. We're just two goof goofballs with a microphone. Like, yeah. I mean, and I have a really nice microphone now, but that <laughs> yes. doesn't mean I have any more knowledge. <laughs> That's right. The two it's are so not true. related. You guys. It's so true. <laughs> Anyway, so should okay, we? So let's do. We both agree, I think, that our favorite part of Jasna was meeting our listeners. Yes. But what was your favorite part of Jasna, like the actual Jasna things, if that makes sense? But so what was something on the schedule that was your favorite thing? My honest to God, absolute favorite thing that I was enthralled and enraptured with was that Janine Barchus um, lost copies of Jane Austen plenary. Yeah, that was probably my, I enjoyed all of the plenaries, but I think that was my favorite. I'm trying that to think was. what my favorite thing was. I don't know. It was just kind of the whole experience was so cool. Yeah, Even just walking cool. around between breakout session to breakout session, there was always someone dressed up or something cool going on. Oh, I do have to share one more anecdote. So we, the Williamsburg Lodge is the hotel where the uh, meeting, the annual meeting took place. And they have a very large wing of the hotel set aside for conference rooms, conference rooms, meeting rooms, rooms for conferences. You know what I'm trying to say. Uh, so we had kind of this uh, one of the wings of a whole group of, you know, six or so rooms set aside for us in addition to other space. But I kept seeing these very like strapping 30 oh, something right. handsome men walking around with garment bags. And I was thinking, okay, either there's a wedding or they have hired people to dress up <laughs> in Regency, men to dress up in Regency wear, which totally fine with that. And then I get into one of the areas where a big group of our conference rooms are. And there's a sign that says, so-and-so wedding groomsmen prep room with an arrow. And I was just thinking, oh my God, these poor guys. <laughs> they were smack in the middle of our Jasna conference. They had no idea what they were walking into. And then I saw that there were, I saw them later all in their um, suits. They'd gotten ready, were walking out. There was like 10 of them. Oh yeah. That's a really, good story. Really big wedding. Well, That's you've heard really me tell it like three times, so you're not laughing anymore. But I hope you know. I, I meant for them though. Like yeah, for the right? there were all these like honest, oh well, our wedding was crazy. <laughs> and there was a Jane Austen convention, all these women were insane. All right. But yeah. That was my last, go. uh, good, last good anecdote. Good job. Say, Thanks. I don't know. You might want to cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't have more enthusiasm for it. I'm I'm super tired. You're playing Candy Crush right now, aren't you? I'm not. No, I'm just super tired. I'm so... Uh, I, oh, I also saw something today where it said, this is 2019. Who's playing Candy Crush anymore? And I was like, oh, oh my God, God we're playing Candy Crush. <laughs> Maggie and I just needed to decompress. So we would go back to the room at night and stay up way too late because we were too tired to go to bed and just Candy Crush it crushing we it hocus pocus we stayed up for two hours oh each on God. our separate bed playing candy crush together and separately your... and honestly it was glorious that was when I drank wine right out of the bottle. Oh my God, she did. She just had wine. She's like, this is my favorite Williamsburg winery wine. She's just drinking it right out of the bottle. Uh, but I like it when you have a friend that you can be together, but do 
separate activities with it that makes sense like yeah like you don't have to constantly be in the same room with with the person honestly being with someone for three days you kind of have to have some decompression time and just like be together but separate and that's what are you saying Kristen? (laughs) i'm saying exactly what you just said (laughs) are you saying that something about my personality means that you have to be apart from (laughs) no not at all honestly i felt the same way too it was just i will say one other thing that was great about jasna and that it was just really great and fantastic and fun and it made me so happy to be with you and hanging out with you for those oh, three days thank you for saying that this is i had so much fun with you too i mean there's certainly no one i would rather go with well and like when we we're booking rooms i was like you know what i need to book a, book a separate room i'm gonna need to decompress and like be alone and because you know all the stress of being around people and looking back like that would have been a huge mistake because it was so much fun to just be in the same hotel room, just hanging out and candy crushing and having focus, focus on or whatever, and just relaxing and being with my friend. It was awesome. I had a great time too. You know, if we'd had adjoining rooms though, I would have just like knocked that door down and come and sat (laughs) next to you anyway. (laughs) One thing about this compared to fan conventions I've been to, this was smaller but that's not the what I the point I'm making the people were so much more engaged with one another so you would just strike up conversations with people next to you about Jane Austen or about whatever you happen to be doing at the time I like we spent the whole ball chatting with people we basically didn't know and had a great yeah. time, but it did. And I'm an extrovert, <laughs> shocker. Um, but it, it was a large expense of, you know, social energy and emotional energy. So even I, at the end of the day, was like, I just need to sit on this bed and watch stupid TV. Because if it was kind of like everyone was so interesting, even like just attendees were interesting. To and talk they all to. had off the top of their heads, they all had interesting stuff to say about Northanger Abbey or about Austin or about you know, what we were there for. And you could get into these in-depth conversations with people. For sure. And I had not had that experience before at a similar type of gathering or meeting. And like I said, I've never been to academic uh, conferences. I can't, I don't imagine they're the same because academics are probably not, well, I don't know. Do people just kind of strike up conversations with each other like that? Yes, they do because they're trying to network. Ah, But they're not always as easy as the conversations at Jasmine were. I just thought every person we met was really lovely. Yeah, they were. It was it was an awesome, awesome experience. Yeah, it was so fun. I definitely want to go back. I don't know if it can happen next year because next year has a lot of big events going on. Like I'll probably be moving and stuff like that. But I'm definitely planning to attend in 2021 in Chicago. And Bay wants to come. Oh, oh my so God. There you go. You That's know, fantastic. he's got the cravat now. He's got his foot in the door. Next thing you know, he's just going to have the whole Mr. Darcy outfit. This is big news. He loves dressing up. So this I think now that we've gotten him with his gateway, what's next? A Westcoat? A Westcoat. Westcoat. <laughs> Which is apparently how they say waistcoat. Yeah, apparently. Were they all... too busy for all those syllables? It, it just Yeah, the British are too busy for syllables. Too many vowels. Too many, <laughs> you know. Yes. So anyway, um, I'm co- incoherent now uh, from fatigue. And Sorry, so. Vincent. 
But thank I'm, you for recording with me. Yes, thank you for recording with me. And so, uh, Jasna, big thumbs up. Big thumbs, two thumbs up. Fun for the whole family. Let's bring it home, Kristen. What do we say? What we 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 have delighted you long enough.